Section 3 of Great Pirate Stories This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Ian Hatley Great Pirate Stories by Various Authors Edited by Joseph Lewis French Section 3 The Melee Pearls by James Fenimore Cooper We had cleared the straits as soon that early in the morning, and made a pretty fair run in the course of the day, though most of the time in thick weather. Just as the sun set, however, the horizon became clear, and we got a sight of two small sail, seemingly heading toward the coast of Sumatra. Pulled by the rig in dimensions, they were so distant, and so evidently steering for the land, that no one gave them much thought, bestowed on them any particular attention. Perots in that quarter were usually destructed by the ships, it is true, but the sea is full of them, and far more are innocent than are guilty of any acts of violence. Then it became dark soon after these crafts were seen, night set them in. An hour after the sun had set, the wind fell to a light air, that just kept steerageway on the ship. Fortunately, the John was not only fat, but she minded her helm as the light-footed girl turned in a lively dance. I never was in a better steering ship, mostly especially in moderate weather. Mr. Marble had the middle once that night. Of course, I was on deck from midnight until four in the morning. It proved Mitzi most of the watch, and for quite an hour we had a light drizzling rain. The ship the whole time was close hauled, carrying royals. As everybody seemed to have made up his mind to a quiet night, when without any reefing or furling, most of the watch were sleeping about the decks, or wherever they could get good quarters, and be at least in the way. I do not know what kept me awake. For lads of my age are out to get all the sweep they can. But I believe I was thinking of Clowboney and Grace and Lucy. For the latter, excellent girl she was, often crossed my mind in those days of youth in comparative innocence. Awake I was, and walking in the weather gangway, a sailor's trot. Mr. Marble, he ought to believe, was fairly snoozing, on the hinkoops, being like the sails, as one might say, very asleep. At that moment, I heard a noise, when familiar to seamen, that of an oar following in the boat. So completely was my mind bent on other and distant scenes, that at first I felt no surprise, as if we were in a harbor surrounded by craft of various sizes, coming and going in all hours. But a second thought destroyed this illusion, I looked eagerly about me, directly on our weather bow, distant, perhaps a cable's length, I saw a small sail, and I could distinguish it sufficiently well to perceive it was a proa. I sang out, Sail ho! And close aboard! Mr. Barble was on his feet in an instant. He afterwards told me that when he opened his eyes, for he admitted this much meaning confidence, they fell directly on the stranger. He was too much of a seaman to require a second look in order to ascertain what was to be done. 
Keep the ship away. Keep her broad off, he called out to the man at the wheel. Lay the yard square. Call hands, one of you. Captain Robbins, Mr. Kite, bear a hand up. The bloody poras are aboard us. The last part of this call was uttered in a loud voice with the speaker's head down the companionway. It was heard plainly enough below, but scarcely at all on deck. In the meantime, everybody was in motion. It's amazing how soon sailors are wide awake when there's really anything to do. It appeared to me that all our people were mustered on the deck in less than a minute, most of them with nothing on but their shirts and trousers. The ship was nearly before the wind by the time I heard the captain's voice. Then Mr. Kite came bustling in among us forward, ordering most of the men to lay aft to the braces, remaining himself in the forecastle, and keeping me with him to go to the seats. On the forecastle, the strange sail was no longer visible, being now abaft by the beam. But I could hear Mr. Marble swearing there were two of them, and that they must be the very chaps we had seen to Leeler and standing for the land at sunset. Also heard the captain calling out to the steward to bring him up a powder horn. Immediately after, orders were given to let fly all our seats forward, and then I perceived that they were wearing the ship. Nothing saved us but the prompt order of Mr. Marble to keep the ship away, by which means, instead of moving fo toward the proas, we instantly began to move from them. Although they went three feet to our two, this gave us a moment of breathing time. As our seats were all flying forward, and remained so for a few minutes, it gave me a leisure to look about. I soon saw both props, and gliding up was I to perceive that they had not approached materially near. Mr. Kite observed this also, and remarked that our movements had been so prompt as to take the rascals aback. He meant they did not exactly know what we were at had not kept away with us. At this instant, the captain and five or six of the oldest seamen began to catch loose all our starboard and weather guns, four and all in sixes. We had loaded these guns in the straits of Banca with grape and canister, and ready nets for just such pirates as were now coming down upon us, and nothing was wanting but the priming and the hot leggerhead. It seems two of the lights had been ordered in the fire when we saw the proats at sunset, and they were now in ancient condition for service, live coals being kept all around them at night by command. I saw a cluster of men busy with the second gun from forward, and could distinguish the captain pointing to it. There cannot well be any mistake, Mr. Marble, the captain observed, hesitating whether to fire or not. Mistake, sir? Lord, Captain Robbins, you might cannonade any of the islands a certain for a week, never hurt an honest man. Let them have it, sir. I'll answer for you. You do good. This settled the matter. The loggerhead was applied, and one of our sixes spoke in a smart report. A breathless stillness succeeded. The proets did not alter the course, but neared us fast. The captain leveled his night glass, and I heard him tell old Kite, in a low voice, that they were full of men. The word was now passed to clear away all the guns, to open the arm sets, to come at the muskets and pistols. I heard the rattling of the boarding pipes, too, as they were cut adrift from the spanker boom, 
and fell upon the decks. All this sounded very ominous, and I began to think we should have a desperate engagement first, and then have all our throats cut afterward. I expected now to hear the guns discharge in quick succession, but they were got ready only, not fired. Kite went aft and returned with three or four muskets and as many pipes. He gave the latter to those of the people who had nothing to do with the guns. By this time the ship was on a wind, steering a good full, while the two parts were just a beam and closing fast. The stillness that reigned on both sides was like that of death. The proets, however, fell a little bit more astern, the result of their own maneuvering, out of all doubt, as they moved through the water much faster than the ship, seeming desirous of dropping into our wake with the design of closing under our stern and avoiding our broadside. As this would never do, and the wind threatened so as to give us four or five knots away. A most fortunate circumstance for us, the captain determined, to attack while he had room. The giant behaved beautifully, and came round like a top. The poet saw there was no time to lose, and attempted to close before we could fill again. This they would have done with ninety-nine ships in a hundred. The captain knew his vessel, however, and did not let her lose her way, making everything draw again, as might be by instinct. The proas tacked too, and laying up much nearer to the wind than we did, appeared as if about to close in on our lee bow. The question was now whether we could pass them or not before they got near enough to grapple. If the pirates got on board us, we were hopelessly gone, and everything depended on coordinates and judgment. The captain behaved perfectly well in this critical instant, commanding a dead silence and the closest attention to his orders. I was too much interested at this moment to feel the concern that I might otherwise have experienced. On the forecast, it appeared to us all that we should be boarded in a minute, for one of the points was actually within a hundred feet, though losing her advantage a little by getting under the lee of our sails. Kate had ordered us to much forward of the rigging, to meet the expected leap with a discharge of muskets, then to present our pikes. When I felt an arm thrown around my body and was turned inboard while another person assumed my place, this was Neb, who had thus coyly threatened himself before me in order to meet the danger first. I felt vexed, even while touched with the fellow's attachment and self-devotion but had no time to betray either feeling before the crews of the Proots gave a yell and discharged some fifty or sixty matlocks at us. There was four bullets, but they all went over our heads. Not a soul on board the John was hurt. On our side, we gave the gentlemen the four sixes, two at the nearest and two at the sternmost proa, which was still near a cable's length distant. As often happens, and one seemingly farthest from danger fared the worst. Our grape and canister had room to scatter, and I can at this distant day still hear the shrieks that arose from that craft. They were like the yells of fiends in anguish. The effect of that pearl was instantaneous. Instead of keeping on after her consort, she wore short around on our heel 
and stood away in our wake when the other tank peering to get out of the range of our fire. I doubt if we touched a man in the nearest para. At any rate, no noise proceeded from her, as he came up under our bows fast. As every gun was discharged, and there was not time to load them, all now depended on repairing the borders. Part of our people mustered in the waist, where it was expected the probe would fall alongside, and part on the forecastle. This, as this distribution was made, the pilots cast their grapnel. It was a mighty throne, but caught only a random. I saw this, and I was about to jump onto the rigging to try what I could do to clear it, when Neb again went ahead of me and cut the randoing with his knife. This was just as the pirates had abandoned sails and oars, and had risen up to haul alongside. So sudden was the release that twenty of them fell by their own efforts. In this state, the ship passed ahead, all of her canvas being full, leaving the proa motionless in her wake. In passing, however, the two vessels were so near that those aft and the john distinctly saw the swarthy faces of their enemies. We were no sooner clear of the press than the order was given, ready about. The helm was put down, and the ship came into the wind in a minute. As we came square with the two pariahs, all labored guns were given to them, and this ended the affair. I think the nearest of the ranchers got it this time, for away she went, after her consort, but running off toward the islands. We had made a little show of chasing, but it was only a feint, for we were too glad to get away from them to be in earnest. And ten minutes after we tacked the last time, we ceased firing, having thrown some eight or ten rounds on after the pros, and we were close hauled again heading into the southwest. This article is from a float and a shore. Into section three. Recording by Iron Hatley.